concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, when he leaves his home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right, get prepared for a total snark fest because I probably could control myself, but I'm going to choose not to. <laughs> and I've got new glasses and I've got a migraine. And those two things probably aren't related, but you know, background headaches. So I'm, fe you know, I'm feeling a little feisty today. Um... So I don't get sarcastic very often because I really hate sarcasm, but this is an exception I, I always make. Um, Yeshua's flat out taken his disciples to task for asking for signs, you know, because they want to know what the signs of the destruction of the temple. Um, he told them not to be distracted in very harsh terms with the repeated use of the word blepo. Told them to expect earthquakes, famines, persecutions, wars, and rumors of war, and tells them that these things are actually normal and not a sign of anything. Again, he tells them to maintain focus on their mission to preach and to not get swept away looking for signs of the impending destruction of the temple. He tells them that when it is time, it will be totally obvious that it will be about to go down in boy hardy, boy howdy, boy hardy, boy howdy. We know from historical accounts that it certainly was obvious. So there is a, there was no need to monitor the headlines or postulate or theorize about when, because when it began, there was only one possible outcome. If they had spent time wondering all those years beforehand, it would have been time utterly wasted. They would have been living in fear, anticipation, and distraction. Every little rumor on the wind would be seen as confirmation that it was all about to happen for 40 long years. Um, death of Tiberius and rise of Caligula, who declared himself Jupiter incarnate, and ordered a statue of himself placed in the Holy of Holies? Oh my gosh, yes, that, that had to be it. Oops. Not one. He got assassinated before it could happen, but surely, you know, any day now. Claudius! Oh, he expelled the Jews from Rome. Can the destruction of the temple be far behind? Yeah, actually, it can be far away. Um, Nero. Nero burned parts of the city and blamed the Christians. Certainly, this was part of a pre-offensive against the temple. Oh, gosh. No. Um, in fact, nothing at all was instigated by Rome, but by the Jewish zealots. And that not until starting in 66, the Common Era. And it wasn't even until 69 of the Common Era that events had gone far enough that there remained little alternative to the destruction of the temple. And then, still, it was because of the crimes of the zealots in defiling the city 
and temple beyond any hope of cleansing. The thing is, no one looking at the non-signs for 36 years would have come up with anything even remotely applicable. It would have been a total waste of time. This was Yeshua's warning, and it is a warning we are still in desperate need of today and probably more than ever. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with uh, free Bible teachings for both adults and kids, or adults that like to act like kids, like me. <laughs> Now, you can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Blah. Blah, blah, blah. All right. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So, Yeshua refused to give the Pharisees a sign. And what was that back in... Was that back in chapter 8? I didn't write it down. And he refused to talk about signs with his disciples as well. And we've touched on the reasoning a bit elsewhere, but, you know, we're going to review. Signs are in the eye of the beholder. Two people can look at the same sign and two see two diametrically opposed things. The Romans saw the sword-shaped comet over Jerusalem and saw it as a good omen that they would prevail and that the destruction had been decreed by the gods. Okay, The Jewish zealots saw the exact same sign and felt it was proof that God was fighting on their side, which showed a lot of gall, considering how many innocent civilians they were starving and slaughtering. But even the worst villains can and do see themselves as weapons of righteousness. You know, look at Ravi Zacharias and the horrible crimes that, you know, have now been proven. He committed against, oh my gosh, so many women. And, and you know, no denomination is exempt before anyone, you know, thinks, oh yeah, those whatevers or, or these whatevers. Um, this is Jews and Christians both, okay, committing crimes and still claiming that God is on their side. And we cannot forget that people on both sides of the drive, well, both sides of the slavery issue, both in Europe and in America, and I imagine elsewhere as well, use the Bible to prove their point and to claim that they were right. And 
now you'd be really hard pressed to find anyone um, who would be excusing slavery as an institution. And, you know, as, as we go forward in time, you know, we also take another, you know, another look at a lot of things. And, um, you know, especially as we get more and we're studying context more and we're looking at, you know, the cultural, um, paradigms, uh, within which the scriptures were written. And we say, well, is that, is the scripture just describing what was taken place or is it describing God's will? Um, and in the case of slavery, we had to say, okay, no, this is describing paradigms. All right. Anyway. Okay. So, um, you know, ignoring, you know, when we look at abuse, okay. Um, with ministry, getting back to that really quick, my little side thing, I, my side thing got a side thing. Um, we look at people in the ministry abusing people, um, ignoring all the red flags and, you know, they destroying everyone who threatens to expose them, you know, under the auspices of protecting the church or the synagogue. Um, truth is that, you know, going back, we can't be trusted with signs and wonders because we can't even be trusted with the normal stuff that we can all see with our own eyes. Uh, read A Church Called Tove by Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura. It's eye-opening as to how blind we can be, how, you know, purposefully blind, because their church went through this. Now, we also create signs out of our vain imaginations. Say we're having money problems and we feel desperate. This is going to be extreme, by the way. We pray, God, if it's okay with you that I take money out of my elderly parents' bank account to cover my expenses, please have this light turn green. And the light turns green because that's when the timer was set to go you turn it back on. Um, God could have kept it red, but he isn't a puppet. And he knows that we wouldn't even pray such a thing unless we'd already decided to sin. And we were just looking to blame God for it. All right. We're terrible. And he ain't playing that game. No, we're idiots and can't trust in signs. Um, can't depend on them and can't be trusted with them. I look on the social media every day and I'm inundated with the quote unquote signs that the same people see year in and year out that never amount to anything, but they're scared. You know, they want to be in control of their future. They want to know. They hate uncertainty that comes with living moment by moment for God and not knowing what's going to happen in an hour, you know, much less tomorrow or next year. And they fritter their lives away looking for signs, just like people have for almost 2,000 years now. People who could have served the poor or used that zeal to evangelize or help orphans, but instead accomplished nothing. People who I fear will expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but instead might hear, you know, you wasted the talent I gave you by burying it in the ground and focused on unprofitable things instead. It's as though you never existed as far as furthering the kingdom goes. And I know that's harsh, but I see so much wasted potential and so much outright ignoring what Yeshua repeatedly warned. And if you ever want to know how bad it is, look at Amazon's bestseller list, and it will be filled with anything and everything except solid materials from reputable scholars. You write a book guaranteeing that Yeshua will return in 2025 and thousands of people will buy it. Um, write about something responsible and, you know, make sure you don't, you know, quit your day job. There's a lot of money 
to be made in this form of false prophecy. So anyway, let's get into the text. This is, of course, uh, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 32. And this is actually going to take us to the end of Mark chapter 13. And we'll be getting into um, the last third of Mark, which is 14, 15, and 16. Um, verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay. Now, many believe he's changing the subject and going back to verse 5 and 6, as well as picking up on verses 26 through 27, which might serve a dual purpose beyond simply the coming in the clouds. Judgment language we saw when both Jerusalem and Babylon were destroyed the first time. Um, the reason why and why I am inclined to believe them is because of what the phrase that day means in the prophetic language of the Hebrew scriptures. It's eschatological, referring to the end times, and formulaic throughout the prophets for referring to the day of Yahweh's judgments slash visitations, the day of the Lord, okay? Uh, Amos, we're going to look at a bunch of verses here. Uh, Amos uh, chapter 8, verses 2b through 3a, and also verses 9 and 13. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never pass by them. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Uh, Micah chapter four, verses six through seven. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Micah, again, chapter 4, verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. Micah chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come from you, come to you, excuse me, from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Uh, Zephaniah, um, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, quote, I will punish the officials and the king's son and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold 
and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. Traders like in merchants, T-R-A-D-E-R-S. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. All who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. I think I said that was Zephaniah. Sometimes I say Zechariah instead. So, um, Again, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 11 and 16 and 17. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Obadiah 8. And of course, remember, there's only one chapter in Obadiah, so there's never a chapter number. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau. Joel chapter 3 verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. One more. <laughs> Zechariah, this time it is Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. So, um, who noticed that these verses are all wildly different? Now, they're all describing the same thing. The day of the Lord, and some of these are describing different judgments in history. And some appear to be speaking of the time of the final visitation of Yahweh at the end of the age. All right. And it can be confusing because they are all speaking of on or, you know, in that day or at that time. And some of it looks good and some of it looks horrific. But remember that judgment is a neutral term that is neither inherently pleasant or unpleasant. If you've been wronged. You cry out for judgment, right? You want to be vindicated, and vindication is one form of judgment. Now, condemnation is the other half of judgment. So, here, on or in that day, and at that time, we have promises of woe and promises of redemption. It all depends on the situation and what is going on and, frankly, who you are. Uh, let's review... Um, the verse that started out this section in uh, Mark 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. All right. That day and that hour. 
the subject has changed to future concerns of the final judgment of Yahweh. Remember to pay attention to your conjunctions. Our first big clue is the but, and the last time we saw it was another change of subject in verse 14 when they went from, um, here's all the useless stuff that won't be assigned, <laughs> to, you know, hold on to your horses. It's happening. Um, let's look at verses 5 and 6 really quick because it's important. And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. After this, he begins to speak of all the things that will look like signs uh, of the destruction of the temple, but in fact are described as normal events of the sort that naturally happen in the world and always will, but we wish wouldn't happen. Then comes the but that changes the subject from useless signs to something concrete. But when you see... The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This was followed by, you know, apocalyptic, cosmic sort of language, you know, that, that always accompanied cataclysmic judgment, and especially with regard to the original destruction of both Jerusalem and then Babylon. And, um, if this is referring to the second coming, um, but even if he's still talking about the destruction of the temple, Yeshua couldn't be more clear here when he says that no one knows. And I have seen such mental gymnastics performed trying to get out of the plain language of this entire chapter that no, we won't be able to predict anything. Not the day of the destruction of the temple and certainly not the day of Yeshua's return. If the angels who are above us and can see everything we can see and much more, because they can also see what we can't, um, the battles in the spiritual realm and all the things hidden to us, and if the sun does not know the day or the hour, and we don't have a chance of figuring it out, and if everyone's been wrong up to this point, haven't, you know, if ha that hasn't convinced us that we, we're just never going to be convinced. Why is Yeshua saying this? Well, the very next word will be blepo, that warning to be alert. You know, to not be distracted by what is going on around us, to be focused on the kingdom mission. This is not for us to know or to worry about. Our job is to do our jobs until our master returns. And if he does not find us doing what he wanted us to do, then we will have failed. And I know so many people thoroughly convinced that this is their calling, but do we really think that the people who have been wrong over the last two millennia now thought any less of their own perceived calling? In all things, we need to ask ourselves, what was the fruit? Who was evangelized? Who was led into righteousness? Who was fed? Who was vindicated by their predictions and their theorizing? In the end, um, frankly, that's, that's the only measurement that, um, counts. Oh, jeez. And I know, I know that makes people angry. Because I know people feel really, really passionate and have, have expended so much of their life into this. But 
we really have to look at the end results and what has been accomplished. And, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of money doing this. You know, how much money have I sunk into materials, you know, related to this more than, oh, jeez. <laughs> no. Because there is a comfort, even in thinking all this is, even in thinking of it all as horrific, there is a comfort knowing that, okay, this might all be awful, but at least I have some control over the situation because I'm in this group that's in the know, and I won't be caught by surprise, but um, we need to trust, honestly. We need to um, have faith in God that um, we don't, he says we don't need to know. He says, don't be distracted. And that's got to be good enough for us, I really believe. And uh, I'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context, where we are talking about, you know, nobody knows the day or hour except for those guys on YouTube. And, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit snarky. Um, so, you know, I just did a big diatribe about <laughs> all this ignoring what Yeshua said and, and hypothesizing about all this hasn't yielded any fruit in 2,000 years. So, you know, thinking we're different from all the other generations that went before us, you know, we probably aren't. We almost certainly aren't. And I don't think we can ignore the plain language of Yeshua that is going to repeatedly say nobody knows. Not just them. Okay. So, um, I'm going to get back to the text. But before that, um, I am going to tackle the herbal, urban legend that I have myself taught, shamefully, about Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah or whatever you want to call it, um, being the day and hour that no one knows because, you know, yeah. I taught it for years as though I had any sort of legitimate backing, any sort of proof it was ever called that. <coughs> Excuse me. But, you know, I'm going to save that for later, you know, tune in. Um, if you can stand the sound of my voice, bear with me. Um, you know, like the claim that Yeshua used to be called the living Torah when there's no such claim anywhere. And I used to teach that too. You know, like, dang it, right? People say this stuff and they sound so convincing that we just pass it on. We don't even think about the fact they never proved it or cited it or anything. But we have to ask for proof and not just why they think it should be or could be true. And yes, I've got books with that stuff. And it's incredibly embarrassing. But... All right. Um, verse 33, chapter 13 uh, of the Gospel of Mark. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. <laughs> Give up needing to know, he tells them. You don't know. Not only don't the angels know. Not only doesn't the sun know. Not only does no one know, he's re-emphasizing that you do not know. And I think he wants them to accept this. You know, your job is to be on guard. 
and stay awake, which is ironic because of what is about to happen. Um, do you think that if Peter, James, and John, and the others really knew what Yeshua, um, uh, they really knew, knew that Yeshua would be arrested on the Passover, that they would have failed to blapo, stay awake, stay alert, would they have fallen asleep when commanded to pray? I probably would have if I was loaded up with bread lamb. I just, I'm a lightweight when it comes to staying up. But it seems that prayer here is going to be the key in maintaining their and our focus. We cannot change future events by knowing about them. We can't become better believers or more faithful people or more fruitful by knowing the future. But we can become hopelessly distracted by focusing on the pursuit of it, the pursuit of signs, the pursuit of that magical formula where we can figure it out. You know, so much so that we ignore every failure and just figure we'll be right the next time. But we can't be afraid like that. We can't live like that. It isn't why Yeshua told us all this. You know, just the opposite. He's telling us that this is not our concern. Our concern is to remain alert and at the wheel and doing the work of the kingdom, which is always about people. Everyone has a calling to help others in some way, and I fear that most ways are being neglected because people think that doing the flashier things is more important, but it isn't. If it was important for us to know, you know what, then Yeshua would have let us know. Uh, verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. And I like this verse. Again, this is a parable, just as we had last week with a fig tree. The it is like introductions, a dead giveaway. And a lot of this is very double-edged. He's seemingly talking on about three levels. One, judgment will not be delayed forever, even though it may seem a long time in coming. Hence, the warning to stay awake, to live as though he can come at every, any moment. You know, don't be, don't be falling asleep. Uh, two, he's speaking of his immediate future that he will not be gone forever. But at this point, they have no clue that he's going away at all because they still don't get it so they they wouldn't immediately pick up on this three once he does leave them they need to ignore the fact that he is gone and work as though he is there among them in the flesh so do we they aren't going to be uh there there aren't going to be you know household servants loitering out there on the road okay <laughs> looking for him to return instead of doing their important work can you even imagine taking that interpretation away from this, that they should neglect their duties to try and figure out when the master is returning? As though he couldn't send ahead with a letter or something. Um, if his goal wasn't to catch them by surprise, which seemingly he wants to catch them by surprise. You know, what do good servants do? One, they work as they would in the presence of their master. Two, they work even harder because they have the added authority to act in his absence for the welfare of the entire household. Now, the doorkeeper of a house was a very important position. The Greek word is thuros. He was the holder of the household keys. In fact, he was so important that he could be married to a free woman. I mean, slavery was not like 
we think of as American slavery, slavery, slaves in, um, this time were members of the household. Um, at least in Greco-Roman society. Uh, they were generally educated and trained to do highly skilled tasks. And what set free, often in their 30s, would remain as members of the extended household. But I, I really like this most because my name is Tyler and, um, that's what doorkeeper, that's, it means doorkeeper in Old English. No, it doesn't mean somebody who lays tiles. The Tyler was a doorkeeper for an inn and so he had the keys to the door and had to remain awake and alert so as to appropriately allow people in and out. If the doorkeeper was not awake, customers could go elsewhere or be subjected to the dangers of the streets. And if he was not there to let them out, I imagine they would get quite testy. Um, had to be there for Karen. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now, the doorkeeper's life was one of anticipation and alertness, always paying attention to the door and having the keys ready to open it if needed and to lock up safely afterward. Verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, not blapo. <laughs> Um, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Now, remember I have told you that this was probably written for a Roman audience based on the number of Latin loan words and concepts? Well, this is another one. Jerusalem had three watches of the night and the Romans had four. Evening, midnight, cock crow, and morning. Jerusalem would mark the time according to the first, second, and third watch of the night. Uh, just a small indication of who Mark was writing for and how he was making the story more understandable for them. Which brings me to a side issue. There is this idea that everything in the Gospels and Epistles was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but I am unaware of any stories about Hebrew primacy on a single document other than Matthew. And even that document is lost. The Shem Tov Matthew being a clear back translation from Greek to Hebrew during the late Middle Ages. Hebrew original, yes, according to Eusebius, but we don't have it. Now, sometimes people will find old Hebrew transcripts of this or that, but we have to understand that over the past 500 years, it became a common exercise in learning Hebrew, um, which is different than modern Hebrew, for Christians to translate New Testament books into Hebrew, um, you know, from the Greek in, into the Hebrew. So finding copies of Revelation and this and that in private collections and libraries and such isn't shocking. Sadly, they've been misrepresented by some people as being copies or previously undiscovered originals, which is pure hypothesis, utterly unprovable. At best, it's wishful thinking. So... Mark was originally in Greek, and it isn't even arguable otherwise. Writing to a mixed Jewish-Gentile audience in Rome, most of the Jews even being unable to understand Hebrew, Hebrew would have been a waste of paper. Same with the other Gospels and Epistles, except for Matthew's, which appears to have been written for the local Jewish congregation because it covers a lot of infighting over inherently Jewish issues. It wasn't written for the purpose of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. It's full of the hallmarks of Jewish infighting between sects. So I'll stay awake. Not Blapo this time. Because the context is actually referring to a man who might fall asleep if he gets bored. The doorkeeper. Remember, no podcast, no books, no TV or mini fridge. 
This was a boring job, and hence it was entrusted to one of the most high-ranking of household servants. Now we are given additional warning. And we have this third repetition. You do not know. And all they know is that they have assurances that the master of the house will come at some point, but absolutely no guidance other than the fact that it will happen at some point. So, as we covered in the parables of Matthew 24 and 25, like two years ago, you have to live as though he can return every any minute. You have to be prepared, not fearful. You have to be about the work of the kingdom. You know, for me, it means that I have to be praying a lot and submitting myself to him so that I become more and more like him. And that even when I am tired, I keep studying and I keep teaching but the teaching's meaningless if my flesh isn't being destroyed. You know, my hatred, my fearfulness, my sins, all of it. Knowing the day doesn't do a thing to make the person ready, and frankly, trying to figure it out takes precious energy and time that could be spent elsewhere. People need us in their real day-to-day -day lives. They need us tangibly and concretely helping them out. That would also be the job of household servants. Only leading in as much as it involves taking care of other people's needs. And frankly, a lot of it would be caring not only for the needs of the master, but also the needs of the other servants. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And, you know, being a parable, I don't have to tell you that this does not mean that no one gets to sleep until he comes back. You know, but it was the job of the doorkeeper to be awake during those hours when the door would normally be closed and locked. It would be open during the day to allow airflow, obviously. No one wants to be in a first century house all closed up in the heat of the day when there's no air conditioning and no deodorant. Sleeping is the opposite of being on the job for the doorkeeper. It's as simple as that. Even the doorkeeper slept during the daylight hours. It's all a matter of doing what is appropriate at the proper time. And that looks different for everyone, but there will always be, you know, good fruit when someone is doing what they're supposed to. And again, the sense here is that there will be no warning whatsoever until the doorkeeper hears the footsteps or noise in the courtyard. Then there will be a shout and people will run out to greet the master and welcome him back home. Verse 37. <sighs> and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. For anyone who would think, well, but he didn't come during their lifetime, so he's only telling them what they don't know, that they, or that they don't know. Right here, what I say to you, I say to all, all stay awake. A larger audience is rarely indicated, and especially not in these private conversations, but here we have a notable exception. The angels do not know. The sun does not know. They do not know. We do not know. So these books promising he is returning on, how about April 28th, 1843, or March 21st, 1844. How about when Ellen G. White said he would return on October 22nd, 1844? Or how about um, the predictions of 1881, 
1973, 1901. How about Edgar Wisenant, who um, predicted Yeshua's return in 1988 and 1989? Um, you've heard of the um, 88 reasons why <laughs> Christ will return in 88 and 89 reasons why he's returning in 89. Um, then there was 2000. You remember the Y2K stuff. People were nuts over that. Um, May 21st, 2011, Harold Camping, and I lived near these guys at the time, and this was horrible. Uh, then October 21st, 2011, when the first one failed to happen, September 29th, 2011, May 27th, 2012, May 18th, 2013, and this was all, um, Ronald Wineland, um, Worldwide Church of God and uh, Church of God in Christ, I believe. Uh, Charles T. Russell <coughs> of the Jehovah Witnesses gave so many dates that it's embarrassing. I'm not going to list them all. About five years ago, a popular Hebrew Roots ministry online had to retract their claims about the start of the tribulation back in, you know, I think 2016, but I can't remember for sure now. Another Hebrew Roots teacher was date setting about things beginning in 1997 and things fall through. And they even sometimes dare people to call them false prophets if it doesn't happen, but they never leave ministry and people just shrug it off because people greatly desire these types of predictions. People love them. It satisfies both the need for entertainment, a need for control over uncertainty, and a need to feel in the know, even if later they find out that they didn't actually know anything. But if we keep working as though he will both be here any minute or in a thousand years, we will do well. If we work like he'll be here tomorrow, then he will find us hard at work. If we work like he will linger another thousand years, then we will do much to alleviate suffering in the here and now, knowing that our actions will have long-lasting repercussions on innumerable generations to come. Now, just imagine if William Wilberforce would have shrugged and said, Nah. Christ is returning any day now. It's obvious from reading the newspapers and reading Revelation. Wickedness can't possibly get any worse than it is, so he'll come quickly. If Wilberforce and his friends had that lukewarm, self-serving, lazy attitude, then there would still likely be slavery in Europe and America. We need to stay awake and act as though we all have a long, long time to live with the consequences of both our actions and inactions. Okay, so next order of business. No one knows the day or hour supposedly, you know, referring to Yom Teruah, a.k.a. Rosh Hashanah, a.k.a. the Day of Trumpets. When I was in the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I say when I was, because they pretty much kicked me out when I found out all the Hislop stuff, you know, the two Babylon stuff had no archaeological backing and actually went against everything we know about Babylonian religion. Um, You know, no peeing on that third rail loud. Um, anyway, I came across some very passionate sounding teachers who sounded utterly convinced in their claim that the day or hour no man knows was a well-known idiom for the day of trumpets, which occurs at the sighting of the first sliver of the new moon at the beginning of the seventh biblical month. And I thought they had proof because otherwise, why would they say it as though everyone knows it's true? Well, they always used, also used to teach that about the Babylonia origins of everything. Um, and that wasn't true either. But they still said, everyone knows. Well, no, everyone didn't know. You know, I used to teach it too. 
didn't even occur to me to demand a source. But then, you know, one day someone asked me for a source and I say thank you to them. And I searched my brain and despite all I had studied and read for so many years, I had most shred of proof, which I should have had if indeed this was a well-known idiom. Asked around, asking for proof from ancient sources. All I got were people making the arguments as to how it made sense, but that's not the same thing. If we say something is an ancient idiom, then it means that it showed up in an ancient document. If it doesn't, then we are just straight up lying. And that was, you know, years ago. And I just stopped asking because people would get really upset about it. But I'm going to say this right now. When I taught it, I had no proof. The people who taught it to me when challenged had no proof. Arguments as to why something could be true are insufficient. I could watch your life and come up with reasons why you're probably cheating on your spouse or you're on your taxes or, or whatever. It doesn't mean it's true. It just means it makes sense to me that you could be. Even if I believe you are, I need proof, right? Of course, right. That's how the Hislop to Babylon stuff became so popular. No one asked for proof or went looking for proof, and a lot of people flat out did not want proof. They just came up with plausible-sounding reasons why it made sense. Why, you know, as somebody said, why anyone with half a brain could see it. Well, let's try to have more than half a brain, all right? <laughs> I told you I was going to be snarky. Um, you know, but... To people who actually study Babylonian religion like I have, it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense when your only knowledge about Ishtar and Tammuz and Nimrod are from urban legends, not when your knowledge is actually from the primary sources, which we have a lot of. And then you realize that everything is 100% manufactured and horrifically racist at that. I mean, dang, if only people knew. A Babylonian princess with blonde hair and blue eyes really, from that area of the world, marrying a black deformed Canaanite in a book written during the 1850s and no flags went up? Anyone? Come on, guys. Oh, I wish I'd checked it out before I'd passed on the nonsense about dipping egg in the blood of slaughtered babies, and I'm so embarrassed now. Just goes to show that when we are mad, we will believe anything bad about the organizations we're mad at. You know, prejudice compromises everything for sure. Ugh. Anyway, let's real quick, as we're wrapping up here, talk about the parousia. In Matthew's version of this account, there is an additional question that I believe was added in order to make more sense of the account. In Mark, we have, when will this happen? What will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? So, they only ask two questions in the earliest written account. But Yeshua answers three questions, so I believe that when the account in Matthew was penned, a third question was tacked on. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Did Matthew have additional information that Mark didn't include? Perhaps, or maybe he was just helping the audience to understand. We'll never know for sure. The word coming is parousia. And parousia was a very specific event. It was the triumphant entry of a war hero or a king to a city. He would approach, and the people would all come out to meet him and then parade him back into the city. And this actually happened when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem. He was greeted with open arms and welcomed as a conquering hero. 
It also happened, I believe, with Simon Tassi at the end of the um, Maccabean Revolt. But the point of a parousia is never that the king comes and the people leave with him to go somewhere else. A parousia is what happened when a king is coming to reign in that city. So if we are talking about a second coming here, it's not a rapture. That's not how a parousia worked. It's the opposite of a parousia. Um, so we see a parousia in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 very famously. For this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So again, that coming is, guess, parousia, um, an actual historical and well-established event with one meaning. It cannot mean rapture. Yeshua will return, we will go out to meet him and then escort him back to rule and reign here over the kingdoms of the earth. It's actually a much better picture. We will establish him as king of kings and lord of lords here. You know, what can I say? History is so super cool and words have historical meanings that we can't circumvent or ignore. Just like when we talked about how pharmacia has more in common with essential oils and herbs than with modern meds. Context always determines meaning. All right, so next three weeks, we are going to do stuff on the festivals. Um, going to take a look at, oh, traditionally for um, Rosh Hashanah slash Yom Teruah, um, the barren women of scripture are the scriptural readings, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about, for Yom Kippur, we're going to talk about repenting for all the variations of the prosperity gospel, so there's a lot to work with there, and you'd be surprised where it pops up in our lives. And then for Sukkot, we're going to talk about depression and what happens when your joy, you, it isn't the season of your joy. Anyway, see you then.